Episode 54 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast is with Chris Barnes, who now works as a self-employed sports scientist. He joined us to talk about his experience introducing sports science into football. He spoke about what makes a good sports scientist or S&C coach, the future of sports science and where he sees it going, and also the, what he sees as the main role of a sports scientist or strength conditioning coach. Big thank you to everyone that attended our Middlesbrough meeting last night. It was great to see everyone there. We had over 20 coaches, um, plenty of the guys from Middlesbrough as well. And special thank you to Johnny Madden for sorting out the meeting. Also to Black Box for supporting us and for Rob Pacey to, for coming along. And also the club, so Middlesbrough for hosting us. And then everyone who came out as well, there were some great discussions. It was great to see a few familiar faces um, and catch up with everyone and open up some discussions on some current topics. So big thank you to everyone that came out. We are under a week away now from our next events. There's two events very close together. So we on Tuesday next week, we're going to be up at Celtic at Celtic Park. Um, the tickets are going pretty well for this one we do have a few remaining but not so many so if you do want to come and join us up at Celtic Park with Oliver Oliver Morgan and Jack Naylor make sure you go over to our website footballfitfed.com click network meetings and events and click the Celtic um, meeting just there and you'll be able to confirm your place and get your ticket in the meantime I hope you enjoyed this episode with Chris and let us know what you think Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 54. I'm delighted today to be joined by Chris Barnes, who is a self-employed sports scientist. Chris, thank you very much for coming on. It's a pleasure, Ben. What's been going on in your world? Are things keeping you busy? (laughs) Well, for certain things are busy uh, at the moment. I mean, self-employment rings with it. Uh, A lot of really positive things but uh, you you can never hide from the fact that uh, you know self-employment always means that you never really know what's around the corner so yeah for certain exciting times at the moment I've got uh, a few nice um, ventures planned to deliver a little bit of work in Asia and across Europe uh, which I'm really looking forward to well that sounds great so for anyone that doesn't know, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that do know your your background and where you've been, who you've worked with, but let's uh, let's take you through your story so far up to where what you're doing now. Um, so where you've been, who you've been working with. Yeah, of course. Um, I, I guess my background is a little bit different to an awful lot of the people that uh, you engage with, and it's it's simply an age thing, I would guess. Uh, when I left school at 16, uh, sports science didn't exist. Uh, I'm from the northeast, as you can probably gather. Uh, so when I left school, uh, I joined the steelworks, and I spent uh, the first eight years working as a metallurgist or a metallurgical scientist, if you like. Uh, the nice thing about that was it did give me solid scientific grounding. Uh, it instilled in me some... I, I hope some um, some good principles, some good ethics, uh, and a way of working which I bring with me to this day. Um, after the after those eight years, I did decide that I didn't really want to do that for the rest of my life, and so went to university and studied PE. Um, following graduation, 
I spent a spell working in further education, followed by six years in HE, and then it really a chance phone call one day when I was working at uh, Teesside University led to a conversation with some of the staff from Middlesbrough Football Club, uh, which kind of grew out into a prolonged conversation about the plans that the chairman had to develop uh, a way of working which is relatively novel at the time in football. And all of that was based on the experience they had with Fabrizio Ravanelli. Um, Rav had been at the club for a year. They'd had a, a real up and down year in that uh, they'd got to two domestic finals, FA Cup and uh, the Carling Cup equivalent, uh, but they also got relegated. And Rav, he left the club at the end of the year, but advised the chairman that he really should take a look at investing a little bit more in science and medicine and also in the facilities. So the medical team that were there at the time certainly knew medicine, but weren't overly familiar with science applied to football. And it just happened that I uh, I knew uh, one of the guys there who pulled me into this conversation. And the conversation, uh, to cut a, what is a long story short, a uh, conversation led to me being pulled on board to uh, help set up and develop a sports science programme and curriculum. So I did... I did 12 years at Middlesbrough, uh, during which time I think um, we did an awful lot of good stuff, and we certainly did an awful lot of, uh, uh, we, we had an awful lot of efforts at trying to push the envelope, which um, weren't so successful as well. Um, but at the end of the 12 years, uh, I like to think that we'd made some small contribution to the development of sports science in football. Um, and at the end of the 12 years, um, as happens in football, uh, to an awful lot of people, at an awful lot of occasions, uh, we parted ways. And I went self-employed. I decided to have a go on my own. Um, and so for the last 10 years, um, it's been a real, it, it's been a really enjoyable and interesting journey. Um, as I mentioned before, you know, self-employment does bring with it a certain amount of insecurity, but it also opens up all sorts of avenues uh, to do things that you wouldn't do if you had just the single job. Um, during that period of time, I've definitely maintained contact with football through work in clubs, so Newcastle, uh, West Bromwich Albion, QPR, Notts Forest, or Nottingham Forest, sorry, to people from there. Um, I'm currently still uh, working with Brondby in Denmark, uh, but I've also had the opportunity to do some work with uh, the larger confederations, so with UEFA and with CAF, in terms of uh, education of people in those areas. Uh, I've also along the way, had the opportunity to do some work with the England Rugby League team for a few years and also with uh, Great Britain Basketball. So it's pretty diverse. Um, it's definitely pretty challenging, but really, really enjoyable. I think it, I, just, I mentioned before we went uh, live before, Chris, that it's great to speak to you, and, and we've obviously spoke to the likes of Tom Little, uh, Mick Clegg, Dave Caroline, all the guys that started off in whatever you want to call it, fitness coaching, sports science. 
great to speak to you guys and see how you, what progression you've seen over the years, um, both good and bad. And as, I know you said that you made plenty of mistakes over the years, which is I think it's always good to reflect on. But what are some things that you've seen that have been a, a real um, positive in terms of progress with performance support? Yeah, um, so I, I guess when I started out, and I, I'm sure that uh, the other guys who've been on have uh, had similar experiences. When we first went in, I think we were probably a little bit of a freak show in that it was it was a whole new um, role, a whole new discipline to a lot of people who in the sport at the time were pretty traditional. So the coaches that worked in football had gone through the traditional route of being a player and then automatically migrating into coaching and then possibly thinking about doing coaching qualifications. And as you know, the whole sport has changed so much um, in recent years. Uh, and now, Whereas perhaps when I went in, we were seen as a role which is a little bit independent from the game and the, I guess, the coaches themselves to some extent. Uh, nowadays, one of the real positives is that the performance arm of the operation in a football club is very much an integrated and an integral part uh, of the whole operation. And where it can add value uh, is truly appreciated by the coaching staff and others, and also, of course, the players. Um, coaching staff mainly because uh, coach education programs nowadays uh, have as a central part of them um, these elements of performance that uh, I guess we were trying to introduce uh, going back those 20-plus years. Um, on, the on the downside, and I, I don't think there is a downside as such um, but I do still get myself I guess um, a little bit frustrated that uh, we've seen this growth in the number of people that are employed on the performance side and I think those of us who've managed to secure a full-time position have a responsibility to try and uh, create opportunities for um, some of the uh, younger people that have coming through, so you know the the old internship programs, which maybe now they're called junior scientists or whatever. But a real frustration that I have from time to time is, I do think that some of the people that are coming in to the game as these younger practitioners are perhaps not as well prepared as they might be. Um, and sometimes I do think that some of them do come in with uh, an inflated idea of the impact that they can make immediately because they bring with them a bag of qualifications. And I think, as you know, Ben, and I'm sure as the other guys have said earlier, um, at the end of the day, qualifications are virtually meaningless uh, if we can't take all of that information and knowledge and actually transition and translate it into something that coaches and players uh, can appreciate and can take value from the messages that we're trying to give. Yeah, definitely. That's um, been the theme throughout a number of different ex episodes and speaking to a number of different coaches. I think that just runs throughout the importance on experience and we know the the positives of qualifications and the benefits, but we need to be able to put it across. And communication comes up time and time again. Um, I wanted to I wanted to ask you 
Chris, about where you mentioned about Ravinelli. Um, so the fact that he mentioned to the club about the value of sports science, you think that was one reason why they bought into it so much because it came from a player? A hundred percent. The whole thing started from that conversation between him and the chairman, Steve Gibson. You've got to remember that uh, Ramonelli came to the club from Juventus, having won, it wasn't the Champions League then, it was the European Cup. But the previous season, he'd been a member of a European Cup winning team. It was probably one of the one of the, the highest profile players on the planet. So when he, when he had something to say, uh, clearly it was always going to be worth uh, listening to. It, it was interesting. I mean, Rav himself, uh, when he arrived in Middlesbrough, he brought with him uh, one member of staff who actually travelled with the team who was a chef. And he had a – he was a performance nutritionist at the end of the day. You know, the food he was cooking – uh, was very much like the food that uh, we see being put in front of players routinely nowadays. But the idea in those days of uh, a player actually bringing a member of staff with him to ensure that he was appropriately prepared uh, was, again, pretty unique. So, yeah, I mean, his opinion most certainly precipitated the conversation with the medical team, but it also led to Steve Gibson investing and I think it was something like £20 million uh, at the time, uh, in this, what was a new training facility at Rockcliffe Park, um, the likes of which people hadn't seen before. You know, it was a blank sheet of paper. And I think the starting point in terms of when I say, you know, we made mistakes, um, uh, to some extent, would have been in the design of the, um, the training centre there. So the first thing I did, for example, was given that my background was teaching exercise physiology in a university, I put a lab in the training ground. <laughs> um, and I, if I had my time again, I'd have elements of a lab in the place, but I might not spend all of the money that we did um, creating that facility. Uh, in the context of that as well, one, one other blooper uh, that I made was I... I, did, I didn't make the roof high enough. So when uh, we put Gary Pallister on the uh, on the Woodway treadmill there and then put any kind of an incline on it, uh, we, it, it the roof wasn't uh, actually high enough. We had to have the roof raised uh, in the place itself. So, yeah, um, it was all down to that one conversation that uh, these developments started at Middlesbrough and that I had an opportunity to get involved in, in the journey that the club took. I think that relates a lot to practitioners in the game now, doesn't it? Because obviously sports science is huge in the game and it's and it's growing all the time. But there will be coaches out there looking to try new things, like try new things with players and um, new research will come out and whether they can get that across to the player. So it is interesting to hear how you guys managed to get sports science embedded in a programme and, and get the buying from coaches, from uh, the decision makers like the directors and the players as well yeah I mean the the, the club were fantastic in uh, the way right throughout that uh, they embraced what it was that what it was that we, uh, we were trying to do I mean the first five years I had there uh, Brian Robson was the manager uh, and Brian's a great guy um, as a coach he was pretty traditional and it was good for me and the staff that worked alongside me in that 
uh, every day we were challenged. So at the same time as you're trying to introduce new ways of thinking and new ways of working, uh, you've got people asking you the whys and the wherefores and really um, giving you um, a good grilling. And that forces you to examine what you're doing. Uh, five years after that, uh, we had Steve McLaren and his team at the club. And, and Steve was fantastic to work with because he was somebody who really did want to embrace any kind of new development that was taking place. So when we started in introducing things like um, hypoxic training, uh, for example, um, which had been used in endurance sports, but not in um, intermittent high intensity sports to, to, to any large extent before. Uh, this was really sort of embraced and reinforced by um, Steve and his team at the time, which meant that we could actually try things like that out uh, while we waited almost for the literature to, to catch us up in those areas. I hope you're enjoying the episode with Chris so far. There's plenty more content to come, uh, loads of great information from him. But I just wanted to give you a little heads up on some of the updates on our online community. So we uh, will be adding, if you weren't able to make our Middlesbrough meeting uh, last night, Johnny Madden's presentation will be uploaded to the community. So you'll be able to get access to that, which was great and great to get his reflections on his practice. We've also just added Will Abbott's presentation from the meeting we did um, a while back at Brighton. And then there's also an interview with our friends over at Sports uh, Sports Support, um, which is based around CV writing and uh, job applications. So there's some great information there on what coaches don't do as well, what they need to include in the CVs, and basically what is going to improve your chances of getting a job in football. So to gain access to all of that, you do get the first month free on the community. Go to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab at the top, um, sign up to the community, you get one month free. And then after that, it's only $4.99 per month. We are doing an offer at the moment where if you do sign up, you get a free copy of our Speed Drills ebook as well. So go and check it out. Um, check out the presentations. There's a few different webinars that I've mentioned in previous episodes as well and some more network meeting presentations. The Celtic presentations will be going on there as well. So Jack Naylor and Oliver Morgan's presentations will be going on there. So if you can't make any of these meetings, make sure you sign up to the community and go and check out all the content on there and get involved in the forum discussions as well. Enjoy the rest of the episode with Chris. Yeah, that I think that's the way with a lot of things that come into the game and, and uh, performance coaching, isn't it? That coaches will be doing things and they'll sort of know the benefits. And then the research, it does take time for people to do the right sort of research and the right um, articles to be published and research to be published. And then that's the point. Then, and you've got that proof behind your practice, haven't you? Uh, for certain, it, give, it gives you a license to push on. Um, what is interesting, though, is, and uh, I mean, you know, everybody's aware at the moment, for example, that um, pretty much every club in the top flight, second, tier two, tier three, are now using tracking devices, for example, um, to get information on training and match load in players. Uh, and there's been, there's been a huge amount in the literature in relation to the levels of uh, precision and reliability 
uh, with these devices. But I'm always intrigued as to how few clubs still go through the good practice of establishing for themselves the kind of noise that they're getting in their environment uh, from the devices that they're using with their players. So some kind of uh, contextual evaluation uh, of that. Yeah, yeah, certainly is interesting. I, th- I think one thing to um, that would be good to get you to answer, Chris, would be we mentioned before about young practitioners not being prepared and, and focusing too much on qualifications, not enough on experience and being able to communicate the message across as effectively. But in your eyes, what, what makes a good fitness coach? Um, the fitness coach has to have the trust and respect of the players and of the staff. And at the end of the day, if they don't have that, you know, I said it before and I'll say it again, whatever qualifications they have really don't matter. At the end of the day, obviously the principal role of the fitness coach is to take care of the, um, the preparation and, de- and physical development of the players. But Additionally, um, whether you're a fitness coach or you're a scientist or whatever, there's a whole host of different titles that people have nowadays. Uh, But the main role that we all have now is purely and simply, you know, we're we're collecting so much information uh, from the players on a daily basis now. And our principal role is to try and pick out which pieces of those information actually matter and ensure that we communicate them in the right way to the coach principally, but also to the players at certain times. Uh, And we give that to the coach so that he can hopefully use that to make more good decisions himself. If he makes more good decisions, then hopefully performance improves and uh, everybody stays in a job a little bit longer. So the real role is having that relationship and trying to understand how to calibrate information such that it suits that coach. That becomes a real challenge, obviously, in a lot of clubs nowadays where coach turnover is so high. So it may be that what works for one coach, you have somebody totally new from a totally different background and culture come in, and you've got to totally recalibrate that same information into a different form to try and ensure that you get the message across to the new guy. Yeah, and that's definitely, we've spoke, we've spoke about this in previous episodes in terms of coaches trying to, we understand why coaches try to do so much in such a little time um, because it's trying to make an impact, isn't it? And we don't know what's around the corner. You don't know, like job security isn't there within football, unfortunately, at, at many different clubs. So it is a case of a lot of coaches trying to do a lot of things in a short amount of time. And the, the relationship side is really interesting as well because, that, again, that comes up time and time again. Um, what what are some things you think people get wrong with trying to build relationships? And that relationship is key, isn't it? With with like you said, trying to get information over to the coaches and the manager. Yeah, I mean, the, the, as I say, you know, this this relationship consists of a certain amount of trust and a certain amount of respect. And so the first thing is you can't force it. So. Um, you will, and I, I have seen on so many occasions, uh, and you know, I, have, I think you've got that classic paper from Martin Boucher with the, have you, have you seen my report coach? Um, we've got people running around with uh, spreadsheets full of information or data 
trying to force it down the throats of coaches who, for whom not a lot of this information actually is important because what's happened in training is kind of what you might have expected to have happened in training. There's nothing that's outstanding in there. And the coach has got a thousand other people knocking on his door um, trying to provide information. So you, you need to, I, I guess, just take a step back in the first instance, when we're with a new coach, uh, we really have to try and understand their philosophies and their ways of working and what really matters to them so that we can align the work that we do and the information that we provide with that rather than actually potentially butting up against it because we've got a way of working and it worked with the last coach. So why shouldn't it work with every other coach uh, that comes into this place? And almost, I guess, overplaying uh, you know the importance and we've all got an ego but actually overplaying the importance that we think uh, we have within the organization so for certain you, you need patience we need to embrace the philosophies of the coach despite the fact that they may be different to the previous coach who you might have had an excellent relationship with and then pick your moments to, to actually have a conversation when you know that the coach is relaxed and just try and engage in ongoing dialogue where gradually he can understand that what you're trying to do is actually give them stuff that will uh, will give them a greater chance of achieving the success that obviously everybody wants. And with all the data and, and everything that's available to us now, Chris, especially at the top level, where should coaches start in terms of prioritising it? Because we've spoke to a few coaches before and said, like, what, where do you see the future of sports science? And a lot of coaches come with the same answer, that they feel like the, the data that's going, going to be collected is going to stay the same, if not increase, but the data that's going to be used is actually going to decrease and they're going to be able to narrow it down a little bit more. So where, where would you start with that? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Uh, and I would totally agree um, with, the, with the other people that have mentioned that. We do seem to be collecting an awful lot more information and an awful lot more data. Um, I truly question the value of uh, quite a bit of this information and data because in certain circumstances, uh, by the time, I'd, I'll take, for example, um, urine analysis. So uh, in certain clubs on certain days, they will routinely take urine from players, which we, you know, we both know annoys the life out of the players. And if you're going to do something that frustrates these people, then you have to be sure that there's going to be a value to it. Um, and you know, I would say unless that information or that, uh, in this case, uh, the sample that you collect that creates the information, unless that is actually going to inform proactive decisions that the players can see the why uh, don't do it in terms of the other information that people collect and again I guess you know the the GPS devices that we have are a great example of that um, there's the sports scientists that are actually collecting and collating this information have to develop systems which have flags inbuilt into them where we can football is if, if, if we wanted an easy life, we'd, we'd have gone into a sport where you get from A to B in a straight line uh, and you're not involved in this, probably the most random sport in the world. Um, 
And the very nature of football means that any information we collect is going to have inherent noise in it. And I think it falls on the scientists to create systems where they can quantify that noise. So when there is actually something meaningful and something interesting that comes out of the, uh, uh, this data, that we can pick up on that and act on it. Uh, coaches, I know that you know, if somebody takes a sheet of paper into a coach's office, drops it on his desk, the likelihood is the coach will be speaking with somebody else. When you come back the following morning, that piece of paper will probably be in the same place. Uh, and the coach maybe won't have had the time to look at that information. Whereas if you can have just 60 seconds with a coach, giving him the headlines and the key messages that matter, that verbal conversation undoubtedly will have more chance of precipitating a decision that's meaningful in that club. That's a real key skill, isn't it, in terms of taking all this noise and all this data and really, um, I suppose, like pinning it down to just a couple of key points and then how you put it across is the, that's where you're going to get the true buy-in but also the true performance effects, isn't it, with the coaches and the players? Uh, a hundred percent. Yeah. And, you know, we, we go back to what you, what you were saying earlier, you know, increasingly with all of this additional information that seems to be, uh, that we seem to be amassing, um, that one of the core skills of the scientist in football has to be an appreciation of, they're not data, data scientists, but we are analysts now. And we have to be able to create and understand systems whereby we can distill uh, this large amount of information down into meaningful messages at the end of the day. Yeah, definitely. Well, this might be a bit of a, a broad question, Chris, and take it how you want. And, and I've asked this to a few different people. Where do you see the future of sports science? And by sports science, I, I cover sort of S&C, like uh, any sort of performance coaching in that as well I think I, I think that uh, the growth in the technology that's available to us is certainly going to continue um, and it's, it's funny you're going to some clubs now and the clubs like a perform better catalogue they've got every gadget and every piece of kit uh, available to them uh, part of the challenge that we have with all of this is that we are collecting discrete and independent pieces of information and really struggling to put them together to build the whole picture. Um, and I think that one of the things going forward that we hopefully will be able to do a little bit better is to build a holistic picture of players using these technologies but having the capacity to integrate data. So the flags, you know, going back to what I said earlier, the flags that we're raising uh, may be based on information from uh, multiple sources. The worry is that the future becomes far too driven, though, by you know, this constant search for information. At the end of the day, um, you're, you're, the best SMC coaches are the people that... Uh, can deliver best in their in their environment. So, uh, you know, in the gymnasium or on the field, 
And you go back to the core skills, which are about these relationships, and it's about trust, it's about respect, and it's about the craft, if you like. And, you know, people will talk about craft knowledge. And it's about that craft knowledge, really. So irrespective of the fact that we've got this technology race going on, there is a there is a core set of skills, uh, values, and knowledge uh, that will still be much much more important than you know. Do you have the latest uh, piece of uh, either uh, tracking technology or the latest um, piece of kit for measuring various um, elements in the gymnasium? You know. Uh, and so we can't lose sight of the fact that there is there is a core skill set that practitioners will always need. Yeah, without a doubt. And I think another thing to get your advice on, Chris, which would be great, is for, for coaches, and I was going to say young coaches, but it doesn't have to be young coaches, coaches of, of any age or any experience, if they turn around and say there's no opportunities out there in football, how would you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, there's been quite a lot um, of attention given to this lately, I guess, on social media and in various places. Uh, for certain, we live in a world where, and I don't know what the number is, but I think it's probably over 10,000 people graduate each year with a qualification in sports science or related areas. Um, and the reality is, is that there are a limited number of opportunities in football. So when we would take uh, interns, and I'm going back three or four years, but when we would take interns, say, at West Bromwich Albion when I was there, we'd advertise each year and we'd probably get five or 600 applications. But of those five or 600 applications, probably 450 were, you know, they were vanilla applications. You couldn't distinguish between one person and another and I wonder first of all you know how many of these people who are saying that there aren't actually opportunities out there are people who are maybe sitting and waiting for opportunity to come to them um, for certain uh, there were a very limited number of people um, have really have proactively come and made an impression on myself and colleagues in the last few clubs we've been at in terms of trying to find experience and trying to sell themselves in a way that is about more than just the qualifications that they have but it's about the personality that they have it's about them going out and initially seeking shadowing or voluntary opportunities uh, the other thing i would say is um Football isn't just about uh, the Premier League and you know the Championship and the big clubs. Uh, there are many, many tiers in football, and f for those people in who are going through uh, education programs at the moment, who aspire to work in some of the bigger areas, they are the bigger clubs in football. Um, I would strongly encourage them to try and get some voluntary experience local to where their university is, maybe at tier six or seven or eight, um, where really they'll be given the opportunity uh, to take on a whole range of roles. And that's really the way, I, I guess, you know, you asked the question, going back to the start of the interview, um, winding the clock back 20 years, you know, the likes of Tom Little and Dave Carolan and myself, 
we were doing pretty much all of the jobs that were needed. Uh, so we were the S&C coach. We were the on-field conditioning coach. We did the testing, the monitoring. Um, we looked after nutrition, given the little knowledge that we had. And these people, if they go out seeking these uh, opportunities at tier six, seven, eight, whatever it is, they'll be getting exactly that same experience there where people will be looking at them for information from a whole range of sources. And that kind of experience is invaluable. And they are the people that I think most clubs will be looking for when they do recruit new staff uh, into, in, into the roles, that, or the limited roles that do become available. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I think the phrase of like a, a vanilla um, CV or whatever you want to call it, I think that's great because you you do need to create, be creative, don't you? Going into these these um, applications, you can't be just putting in that you've come out of your degree and you've got your masters because, like you said, there's tens of thousands of other people that have got exactly the same thing. So you do have to be creative. You do have to build experience for yourself, and the amount of opportunities out there is limitless isn't it really the some of the clubs that you mentioned in the the lower tiers are crying out for people to offer um the expertise that some of these guys will have that, that absolutely they will do and and the great thing is in a lot of these environments as well you know i go back to you know my own experience and i hold my hand up i'm sure i have made more mistakes uh, than probably any other practitioner out there um and I think these places, um, they'll, they'll challenge people to make a real contribution to the club. But they'll also be forgiving of the fact that these people are also learning the craft. And what they're trying to do is, you know, they have the knowledge. Um, but an awful lot of the knowledge that we have, that, you know, that we, we are, um, we're provided with as we go through university, uh, is theoretical. And what very often people don't give us is they don't give us that bridge to translate that theory into real life and into practice. Um, and that, it, it, it isn't difficult to do so. You know, I don't think you can do an academic module uh, on that. You've got to live and breathe uh, the environment to understand why some things do work and why some th- other things are just totally impractical. And you've mentioned a, a few times about making mistakes and we all make mistakes and it's how we react from them and learn from them, isn't it? But doing it at that lower level is a better position to make those mistakes in, isn't it? Rather than being at some of the top clubs. Oh, without a doubt. Um, what, what I would say, though, Ben, um, just there is, a, you know, I really hope that I am still making lots of mistakes today. And I genuinely say that uh, because... If you're not making mistakes, then you're, you're really not trying to actually um, push boundaries and you know, continue, hopefully, to uh, enable our profession to progress. You know, it's still a very young profession, and it would be a shame if people were afraid of making mistakes and so therefore just sat in a comfort zone. And really, we're doing the club that they work for a disservice by being so afraid of, uh, if you like, being caught out. Yeah, that's a great point. Awesome point. Now, Chris, I don't want to take up any more of your time because I know you've got um, a lot of planning for the next few months in a really busy period for yourself. So I really appreciate you coming on um, and talking about all the aspects that we've spoken about already. But if anyone wants to get in touch with you, reach out, ask any questions, is there anywhere that they can do that? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, um, the best place uh, for certain would probably be a direct message through Twitter um, or otherwise. Uh, my, uh, my my email address is chrisbarnes60 uh, at gmail.com. Amazing. Well, thanks a lot for your time. Yeah, thanks really, very much. Really, really appreciate it. And um, yeah. I wish you all the best with everything you've got coming up over the next few months. Likewise, uh, I hope that I think you've got events coming up uh, in the northeast of England, haven't you, shortly? So I wish you well with that. We have, and I think that the day this podcast will go out will actually be in Middlesbrough that evening. Um, so yeah, it's, should, we're looking forward to it going up there, seeing Johnny Manor and all the all the coaches up there. So it should be a good one. I'm sure it'll be a great event. Well, thanks again, Chris. Really appreciate it. No problem, Ben. Thank you. Thanks very much. See you soon. I hope you enjoyed the rest of the episode with Chris. It was great to have him on um, and chat to him about all the different aspects that we covered. Um, I think it was really good to talk about the the initial um, implementation of sports science and and where that came about with where he talked about Ravinelli um, and where he brought it over from Italy. I think that was really good to speak to Chris about that. Some of my biggest uh, takeaways were where he talks about young coaches not being prepared. We spoke about that on previous episodes. So focusing too much on qualifications and not enough on experience. He also used the phrase, the vanilla CV, which I think sums up, again, what we've discussed in previous episodes, that you need to go above and beyond, create opportunities for yourself and experience, and um, don't just put across a CV that's the same as everyone else's. There's, there's so many postgrads coming out of university now we need to do something slightly different to get opportunities in football and also the title of this episode is what matters to them and I think that that was a great point by Chris where he talked about tying in with technical coaches and decision makers and thinking of putting yourselves in their shoes and this was actually a topic of conversation on our meeting last night in terms of putting yourself in someone else's shoes and trying to um, get your head around the decisions they make and um, and trying to decide on what needs to be tweaked with your practice to get the most out of what you want because everyone's trying to work towards the same goals and sometimes I think ego can get in the way a little bit and we make irrational decisions on things so I think they were very current topics that that Chris covered and it was great to get him to um, touch on them you can go and follow him on Twitter he's at Chris Barnes and then just the number 60 on the end big thank you again for listening um, like I mentioned in the episode go and check out the community and everyone that is booked onto the Celtic meeting we will see you there on Tuesday next week thanks again for listening I will speak to you again next week